you're in a quandary as far as in the season right now, as far as what to, to preach. Do you start into Christmas sermons, even though you're not quite there, even though it is after Thanksgiving, Christmas music is allowed now, uh, without offending a lot of people and the like. And, uh, and I am going to start a Christmas series. Uh, as pastors, you're always in a quandary on what to preach over Christmas because you're like, okay, we're kind of limited. And, you know, if you go through Matthew 1 and 2 and Luke 1 and 2, maybe a John passage, uh, uh, you're kind of gone over that material after three or four years. And then you're like, what in the world do we preach now? And you have to be more creative and more elaborate and, and try and do this. And then eventually, if you've gotten far enough away when you've preached a passage, you come back to that, uh, you know, 10 years later, and uh, something hit me last year, and I thought this would be a, a good series for us to have to work through, is uh, something that uh, was brought to my, just uh, my mind, uh, is singing through a song called, uh, on page 83, you can find it in your hymnal if you want to look at it, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. It's a song that is one of our oldest songs in our hymn book. It's probably something that came out of uh, Latin gregorian type chants uh, in the church uh, for a number of years and back then they kind of made up the tune that you would sing it to it wasn't until the 1700s that it actually got put into musical form uh written down and uh it was still in latin at the time it wasn't until 1850 that uh, it became a song that was uh, familiar to english uh, and it had uh, five verses. Eventually, they added two more verses to it from the Latin. Uh, but uh, pretty much what you find now in uh, our hymn book is the standard five uh, verses that are a part of this. But as you sing through that song, what you find with each verse, it starts off with something that you're like, what is this? Okay, the root or rod of Jesse, the key of David. Now, we're a little bit more familiar with what we're going to look at this morning, Emmanuel, but where did that come from uh, in this song? It's a song that's describing the longings of the nation of Israel as they looked forward to uh, their Savior, but it was written after that, and it has some of the longings of the Lord coming back a second time. But in that, there's a name or an illustration of God given. And for many of us, we don't know what that is. You know, in the Christmas song, you're like, what's the key of David? I have no idea what the key of David is. It's sort of like, you know, I think of the one Christmas song, and uh, it's, a, we wish you a Merry Christmas, and no one knows what figgy pudding is. But we sing it all the time, you know, and uh, happily uh, sing that as part of the Christmas tune, and you're just like, what is that? But we sing it anyhow. And it's sort of that way when it comes to these, this song, O Come and Come Emmanuel, with each verse, there's a different title, and you're going, where does that come from? I guess it's from our Bible, but I'm really not sure exactly where it's at and what it exactly means when that term is used to describe Christ's first coming and really it's a uh, most of those verses in the title that is there is describing something about Christ's second coming and so for the next six weeks even though there's five verses we got the Steinbarts coming in uh, as our missionaries to Kenya on the 10th so uh, we're going to take the next six weeks and go through the five verses of O Come O Come Emmanuel and just deal with that first uh, name that is there and go where is this coming from in our scripture and why is this used to describe Christ's first coming and really points to his second coming as we look for the Lord to come back someday. And the passage that uh, we're in today is this uh, one that we find this name, Emmanuel, uh, located in it. And then we're going to go through. It starts in Isaiah chapter 7 and goes right through chapter 11. We're not going to cover all of those chapters because there's uh, one of the passages in Isaiah 11 we're going to cover later on here. But Isaiah 7 through 11 are a prophecy. It's a prophecy that the, the children of Israel oftentimes referred to. You go, how do you know that? Because there's all sorts of cross-references. When you get to the New Testament, it's quoting stuff from Isaiah 7, Isaiah 8, Isaiah 9, Isaiah 11. 
It's a passage that uh, both the prophets uh, used, the Old Testament and then New Testament, we would say, uh, people used quite often. The apostles came to this passage and applied it uh, in multiple different ways. But it was something that they looked at for a nation that didn't have a whole lot of hope. When we're looking at this passage, you, you just to simply, if we were to get a theme, we're going to go from Isaiah chapter 7 to Isaiah 9 and verse 7. You go, that's a lot of territory to cover. We're not going to read the whole thing this morning. We'll summarize some of the sections. But the whole prophecy together gives us an understanding of who this Emmanuel is. You know, why, why was it so important to the nation of Israel that they had uh, this one who was going to come and be here and arrive and be on the scene? And when you start this passage, the theme I'm just going to simply put out there is that God holds up hope in the Messiah or in Christ in the midst of a faithless people. Because what you have in this passage is a faithful people, a faithless people and a faithless king that's going to play a role in this. When you look at this passage, there's bad times in the nation of Judah. I mean, it's bad times. It's about as bad as you possibly can get. You have a bad king. You find him named uh, in verse 1 that you have this individual by the name of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah. Amazingly, he's the father of Hezekiah, which you would never connect that because Hezekiah was one of the best kings outside of David uh, in the nation of Judah's history. But Ahaz is a bad king, lousy king. What we know of him, uh, you can find in 2 Kings uh, 16, 17, 18 in that section. and 2 Chronicles, uh, you can find uh, things about him. But we know these things about him, that he worshipped Baal, that he offered his children in, in human sacrifice. It says he had his sons pass through the fire. Well, what he was doing was he was offering his sons uh, to these gods in order to benefit him. He was willing to kill his sons in order to have a blessing from his gods. He worshipped gods of nations that defeated him. I mean, if it wasn't enough that he worshipped Baal and he worshipped other gods, he had nations that came in and defeated him, and he's looking at their idols and saying, I'll worship them because they seem to be successful. I'll worship those gods. And then what he actually did is he would copy some of the stuff that he would see in other temples, pagan temples. Uh, he went to Assyria and saw a, a, an altar there and said, I want an altar like that in the city of Jerusalem. Besides all of that, he closed up the doors to the temple, and so the worship of God was not going on. And from that standpoint, he's not a very good king. He's not leading out in the spiritual realms as he should. In fact, he's taken the nation of Israel as far as they can get from God. You have a bad king, and you have a hopeless nation. See, what's going on at this time is that you have Ahaz, who's the king of Judah, and you have a, well, a region north of them known as the, the kingdom of Israel, which was the other ten northern tribes that separated away from uh, the descendants of David, left Jerusalem, said, we won't be ruled by a descendant of David, and went off on their own. And they had a series of kings that weren't very good, but the fact is, is that oftentimes, even though they were kinsmen, Judah and Israel would go to war with one another. Well, this is one of those times where Judah is at war with Israel. Not only that, you have the nation of Syria. A man by the name of Rezin is the king of that uh, country. Pekah is the king of Israel. And these men have formed a confederacy you're going to see that term as you read through the passage here they formed an alliance and what they're trying to do is to get judah to do what they want them to do uh, they're having problems with the assyrians who are even farther north uh, they're raging on the border and they're wanting judah to come along and be a part of them fighting against assyria and judah goes we'll have nothing to do with that we don't want to fight. Well, they said, okay, if you're not going to fight uh, and help us with the Assyrians, we'll fight you. 
And you read through the accounts in First Kings or Second Kings and then Second Chronicles, and you find that they actually come down on one occasion, capture Jerusalem, they kill 120,000 people in Judah, they take Ahaz and 200,000 captives out of Jerusalem and haul them up to uh, the land of Israel. If it hadn't been for a prophet that came along and said these are brothers and sisters of you they're related to you why would you make them slave release them they would have gone off into captivity to the nation of israel but they were returned ahaz was returned as king and he rules for a time but this is all the stuff that's going on assyria syria you have israel that is making life difficult for judah and this king and he's a bad king he's a lousy king there's been events that have taken place that aren't going well for those living in judah so in the midst of that for people who have a king that is not very good and they are at the mercy of the nations around them they're a nation that is looking for some kind of hope and what you have in verses 1 through 16 that we read this morning is a sign that is given of hope. That there's something beyond their own capabilities and their situation that should give them hope. You have starting off in verses 1 through 4, it's uh, there that we're told the story that Isaiah is supposed to go and meet Ahaz. He's told to meet him at a northern gate there in Jerusalem. Ahaz may have been overlooking his defenses of the city or whatever it may be, but uh, Isaiah is told to go and to bring along his son. Now for us, it doesn't mean a whole lot uh, that he brought his son with him. And in fact, as you read the son's name, you're just like, I'm thankful I'm not named that. I mean, Isaiah, Isaiah's son's names were, yeah, are, are real long ones. And when you read them in our language, you're like, who would name their child that? Uh, you find uh, in verse 3, Isaiah has his son. His name is Shear Jashub. You're going, oh, what a wonderful name. I'm going to name my child that. But the name meant something in Hebrew. His name was a sentence, and the sentence was this, that the remnant shall return. If people are, the idea is this, if people are hauled off into captivity, that they will return. It's a message of hope for people who are facing the possibility of being hauled off into captivity and the like. It's just a name that says, no, you'll return to this land. You'll be here. That's what his name meant. So even his son, as he brings him along, is kind of a statement, even though things go wrong, there's hope to be had. Your Lord's going to be able to return you here. So he brings his son, he goes to Ahaz and gives him a message. Verse 4, it says this, Take heed, be quiet, fear not, neither be faint-hearted, for the two tails of these smoking firebrands, for the fierce anger of Rezin with Syria and of the son of Ramallah, because Syria, Ephraim, and the son of Ramallah have taken an evil counsel against thee. You say, what's going on here? He's saying, don't worry about these nations. They're like a stick, or we might say this, a match that is completely burned out. Both of these kings who have caused you so much difficulty understand this. There's nothing left in that match. You, you talk about a burnt matchstick. What power does it have? It's going to crumble. That's what he calls them. The king of Syria, the king of Israel, don't worry about them. Because their power is over with. And you say, well, why is their power going to be over with? Well, you look at verse number 8, or verse 7, Thus saith the Lord God, It shall not stand, neither shall it come to pass, this confederacy, this union that they have with one another. And you go, well, what's going to happen? Well, for the head of Syria is Damascus, verse 8, the head of Damascus is resin. And within three score and five years, you go, what's that? Sixty-five years. Shall Ephraim be broken, then that it shall not be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, the head of Samaria is Ramallah's son. If ye will not to believe, surely ye shall not be established. He says this, those kings that you're worried about, understand that the nation of Israel is going to be gone in 65 years. Completely. 
Now we know from history uh, that Israel, uh, its capital, was taken out in 722 B.C., wiped out the city of Samaria, that the capital city was uh, of this. This statement made by Isaiah is about uh, 20 or 15 to 20 years before that. You're saying, well, that's not 65 years. Well, understand that when Assyria comes in and wipes out Samaria, they keep hauling people off to Assyria. And it takes them 60 years to transplant those people out and move new people in that there wasn't anybody from the nation of Israel in the land of Israel anymore. They were gone. And so when this prophecy is made, he's just simply saying, don't worry about these two nations, this nation of Judah and the nation of Syria, they're going to cease to exist. And you need to believe this for you to be established, to have security, you need to believe what God says. Okay, that, that's the challenge here. I'm telling you this, Ahaz is the prophet Isaiah, God's spokesman. You need to hear this message. And you say, well, what happens with this? Well, uh, there's a confirmation sign that could be given. I mean, if Ahaz is going, well, I'm not sure if this is really going to happen. I'm looking at my circumstances and there's still armies to the north of me. Uh, I'm kind of worried about that. Well, God says, I'll give you a sign. I'll strengthen the faith if you just simply have faith. See, verse 11, the Lord says to Ahaz, ask thee a sign of the Lord thy God. Ask it either in the depth or in the height above. This idea of a sign is a, everywhere you see it is typically talking about something that's religious or something like that. But what he's simply saying is this. If you want a sign in the sky, I'll give it to you. If you want something out of the ground, I'll give it to you as a sign that I'm going to do what I'm going to do. As I've just declared, I will do this. You want a sign, I'll give it to you. Now think about Ahaz. All that we know about him, that he's worshipped every god except for the Lord. What do you think his response is going to be? Well, verse 12, Ahaz said, I will not ask, neither will I you know, tempt. The idea there is test the Lord. I'm not gonna, I don't want to make things difficult for him. But really, this is a statement not of just, I don't want to bother God. I'm okay. You know, he's fine. He's got too much to worry about. No, it's just simply a statement that he has no faith in what God says. Don't even bother to give me a sign. I don't believe he exists. I don't really care. As one has put it, uh, this statement in response of Ahaz, this unbelieving king, it just simply says this, as one author said, Ahaz is nothing if not direct he will have no part in such things. He's direct, but he is also stubborn, defiant, rebellious. His refusal indicates a complete lack of trust in the power of God and the faithfulness of God to stand by his prophet. Faith shows itself in obedience, unbelief and disobedience. Here is a practical man to whom the worship of the Lord has little meaning. In a, mean, in a time of crisis, he's too busy for the Lord. He would rather follow the dictates of his own practical reason than to walk in dependence and faith on his God. That's the issue here. He won't have faith in what God says, and he won't even bother when God says, I'll give you a sign. But despite the fact of him saying, I want no sign, you see this in verse number 13. And he said, Isaiah said, Hear ye now, O house of David, it is, a, is it a small thing for you to weary men, but will ye weary my God also? And something that you need to note and perhaps just understand here is that Isaiah is no longer talking just to Isaiah. The ye's and the you's that are there are not singular, they're plural. There's a shift here because what the statement now that Isaiah is making, Ahaz is just representing the nation of Judah who is faithless and represents a long line of kings who had been faithless in God. And he just simply says, you've gone all this time and you keep doing this, you have no faith in him and you weary him. You've been doing this for generations as a people, and you weary him. Well, here's what you're going to get. You didn't ask for it, 
but you're going to get it. I'm going to give you a sign. Verse 14, Therefore the Lord Himself shall give you a sign. And then this statement, Behold. Okay, This is something, when you see that, pay attention to this because this is going to be unusual. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. I mean, that's the sign that's going to happen. Uh, a woman is going to have a son. Eventually, his name is going to be known uh, as Emmanuel. Now, let's just talk about that name first. That name, Emmanuel, just simply means, as if you remember the story in Matthew 1, God with us. Okay, that, the, the statement, the E-L at the end, is the, the, the phrase for God. And then Emmanuel, Emmanuel is the idea, with us, God. And it's a statement that this child is going to be named God with us. Now, that's not unusual. You can name a child this because you can say this, that God is with us all the time. He's always near. You can't get away from him. But this is an unusual child because this is one whose name is going to be Emmanuel because he is going to be God with us. Now, there have been many attempts, and I'm not going to go into this today, but there have been many attempts by people uh, to try and change what this passage simply says, but it does say this, Behold, a virgin shall conceive. And many have tried to change this term to young woman and other things, but as you read the context throughout the, the passages of Scripture uh, and you actually read the New Testament, you'll find out that this is referring to one who has not had relations with, uh, with anybody and is one that has a child. She's a virgin. That doesn't happen. Okay? It's never happened in the history of mankind, uh, and it never will again that a child is born of a virgin, and you say, well, what's going to be so unique about him? Well, he's going to be born of a virgin, and he is going to be God who is with us. And it goes on, and now, and some try to say, well, this is going to be a son that's going to be born during the time of Ahaz, but you read the statements afterwards, and it says this, this, verse 15, butter and honey shall he eat, that he may know to, uh, to refuse evil and choose the good. But before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose what is good, the land that thou abhorrest shall be forsaken of both her kings. You're saying, okay, when does that happen? Well, the, the lands are going to be forsaken of their kings, guaranteed within 65 years, because the Lord has just stated that. We're not talking about a son of Ahaz or somebody who's in the land at the time. The statement is, I'm going to give you a unique sign. Behold, pay attention to this. A virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and he is going to be God with us. Now, it has been the desire of the nation of Israel to have God with them throughout their history. You read the Psalms and you find uh, Psalm 46, uh, the statement made there that the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Well, what are they referring to? The fact that they had a temple or a tabernacle that they had in the midst of them and God dwelt there, but he dwelt there in Shekinah glory, uh, this glory that was there inside the Holy of Holies. But they really didn't get to see God. They really didn't get to visit with him. But they had this generic understanding that he's with us because his temple is here and his tabernacle's here. He's with us. But this is beyond just having a tabernacle or a temple here that's referred to, behold, this one is going to be with us. There is going to be a child that is born, and he will be God with us. So this sign is given. But understand, we usually stop right there with the idea of Emmanuel, and you're like, okay, I've got the passage now that tells me there's going to be a virgin that conceives, bears a son, his name shall be Emmanuel. But you have to understand, this is not the end of the prophecy. Okay, it goes on from here. And you go, well, what's going on? It's still statements being made to Ahaz. 
When you get to verses 17 through chapter 9 and verse 1, you have judgment that's going to be given for unbelievers and comfort for those that believe. You start off in verses 17 through 25. I'm not going to read through all the details, but there is a statement that is made there that the nation of Israel, excuse me, the nation of Judah is going to be judged. You say, why? It's because they were idol worshipers. Many of the people who are followers of Ahaz and are with him are idol worshipers. So there's a statement there, Judah will be judged. You go, why? Because they don't believe in God. They believe in a lot of other gods. But in the end, you find that there will still be few people left and remain in this town of Jerusalem and in the area of Judah, that God's going to be good to them. But there's going to be judgment for Judah. You get into chapter 8 and verses 1 through uh, chapter 9 and verse 1, you have judgment for Syria and Israel. You read through the the statements that are there and uh, you have one of these great names of Isaiah again. Look at verse uh, 1 of chapter 8. Moreover, the Lord said unto me, Take a great roll or a scroll and write uh, in it with a man's pen concerning mehar shahal hashbaz you go okay he's naming his child that what does that name mean well he just simply says this swift is the spoil speedy is the prey uh you're going to find that the lord is going to come and make swift judgment so he names one child hope and the other one judgment's coming you want to think of it that way those are isaiah's sons and he has this son and he names him this. And you go, why are you naming your son? Judgment is coming quickly. Well, it was going to come for the nation of Israel and the nation of Syria. You find that uh, the nation of Israel is going to be overflowed by the nation of Assyria. You find in verse number uh, 7, Now therefore, behold, the Lord bringeth upon them the waters of the river, strong and mighty, even the king of Assyria, all of his glory, and he shall come up over his channels and go over his banks, and he shall pass through Judah, and he shall overflow and go over and reach even to the neck. It's basically saying Assyria is coming, and he's going to judge Syria, he's going to judge Israel. In fact, he's going to come right up like a flooding river, right up to Jerusalem. And you read the account in Hezekiah's life, his son of Ahaz, they do actually come up to the walls, but they don't take Jerusalem. And what God says is, this is going to happen, and you go, why? Well, there's a little statement where you get to the end of verse number 8, and it says this, and this one, the nation of Assyria, will stretch out his wings and shall fill the breath of thy land. And what do you find at the end of that verse? Verse 8. O Emmanuel. You go, who is he talking about? Think about this. Who's the Lord of the land? Not the Assyrians. Not King Ahaz. Not the king of uh, Israel. Not the king of Assyria. No, here you have this statement being made. This is going to happen. Assyria is going to judge. In thy land, O God with us. This is your land. It's referring to this one who's going to come, that this land is really technically his that he is going to rule and reign over this. And so you have another statement of Emmanuel in this passage. Statement being made to God, this is your land, God with us. And so you just follow this out. You have the nations uh, being judged here, but you find out in verse number 11, Isaiah speaking, the Lord spake to me with a strong hand and instructed me that I should not walk in the way of this people, saying, say ye not a confederacy. Uh, So he's basically saying, uh, Isaiah said, I'm not supposed to be going about and going, oh no, the Assyrians, the Syrians, the, the people of Israel, I'm supposed to be panicked by it. No. Verse number 12 at the end, a confederacy, neither fear ye their fear, neither be afraid. Sanctify the Lord of hosts himself. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. Isaiah says, I don't fear any of these nations. You go, why? Because I have a God who's in charge. 
one who controls this land, the one who's in charge of everything, but specifically what goes on in this land. Verse 14, and he shall be for you a sanctuary. But verse 14, here you have the statement at the end, but for a stone of stumbling and for a rock of offense to both the houses of Israel, for a gin and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. You're going, what? For some people, when you talk about God, he's one that brings them delight and hope. But if you ignore him, what he's going to be? He's going to be the stone that they trip on. They're going to trip over it to their own destruction, to their own loss. Now that passage there, as far as the stone of stumbling, is one that the New Testament takes up, and it's not just merely talking about God. It's talking about Jesus Christ. You may have in your center column references there next to verse uh, number 14, you may have some passages that are written there. If they aren't, you ought to put them there because this is where the New Testament quotes those passages and references to Christ. You might want to write down Romans chapter 9, verse 33. You say, what's going on there? And you don't have to turn there. But in Romans... You have a passage in Romans 9 where it's talking about if God is sovereign, why is the Jewish nation seemingly being rejected by God? And you start off and it says this, What shall we say that the Gentiles which followed not after righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness which is of faith? Gentiles are getting saved. Why aren't the Jews accepting Jesus Christ? Well, here's the reason why. Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness, not attained by the law of righteousness, wherefore, because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by works of the law, for they stumbled at that stumbling stone. You go, who's the stumbling stone? Jesus Christ. He's a stone which the builders rejected, as is described in Matthew. He's the one who is ignored by the many. But when you read that passage in Romans 9.33, it says this, As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone, a rock of offense, and whosoever who believeth on him shall not be ashamed. Quoting back to Isaiah. I mean, this is a reference not just merely to God. It's a reference to Jesus Christ. The one who will be Emmanuel, God with us. But here these people in this time of Isaiah, not willing to believe in this God. And then you get later on in Israel's history when Jesus Christ the one who is God with us shows up. The nation of Israel won't accept him. They stumble on him. They won't have him to be their king. Won't have him to be their ruler. The other passage you may want to write next to Isaiah 8 and verse 14 is 1 Peter 2 verse 8. There it's talking about the church. It's built up of lively stones and we're a building, a living building. And talking about Christ, unto you, therefore, that believe he is precious. But unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of a corner. And then verse 8 of 1 Peter 4 says, or 2 says this, in a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word being disobedient. And you have two passages in the New Testament that just simply say this, these people were denying God, but realize this, later on in Israel's history, they're going to deny God with us. The visible representation of God, who he was, Jesus the Christ, the Jews would not accept him. And so you have prophecies here pointing to the fact that not only would Israel reject God at this time, they were going to reject when the Messiah, when the Son showed up. And they did. And you have this testimony of the nation, or excuse me, of Isaiah that just simply says this, that I am going to worship God in contrast to those around me. Isaiah in verse number 19, he simply goes through, or excuse me, verse 16. He says this, bind up the testimony, seal the law among my disciples. I will wait upon the Lord that hideth his face from the house of Jacob. I will look for him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord hath given me are for signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts, which dwelleth in Mount Zion. Isaiah goes, you may all reject this God. I'm going to believe on him. 
He's my God. And my children are ones who belong to God. That passage there in verse number 18, you ought to write next to it, Hebrews chapter 2 and verse number 13. There is a passage there in Hebrews that goes through and talks about the fact that Jesus Christ, He is the one that be, well, for whom all things are and by whom all things uh, are all things and bringing many sons into glory to make Him the captain of their salvation, perfect through their sufferings. For both He that sanctifieth and those who are sanctified are all of one for which cause He is not ashamed to call them brethren. Then you have some other Old Testament passages of Hebrews quote saying, I will declare thy name unto thy brethren in the midst of the church I will sing praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, and here's the quote from Isaiah being applied to Christ. He says this, and behold the children, I and the children which God hath given unto me. Isaiah is simply saying, I have faith in this God. And then later on, what you have in the Hebrews is this book is claiming this, that those that believe in Christ, what? Are sons of God. They're part of the family of God. Isaiah, he believes in God in the Old Testament. You get to the New Testament, and what you find him being is that he is uh, believing like, well, like we should, in God, and is saved and becomes a son of God as you might put it. But you get to the verse uh, number 19 through verse 21, it's just simply saying that there's going to be bad things that happens to Ephraim, to Israel, those 10 tribes that have separated away. There's going to be some bad things, some dark periods of time for them as other nations come in and beat them down. And there's a statement made uh, as you look in uh, verse number 1. It's going to talk about different regions that are going to be judged. Verse 1, Nevertheless, the dimness shall not be such as was in her vexation, when at first he lightly afflicted the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Afterward, <clears throat> afterward did more grievously afflict her by the way of sea beyond Jordan in the galley, of the galley of the nations. He's just simply laying out, there's going to be a region of Israel that's going to suffer greatly. If you were to have a map of the nation of Israel, uh, in the northern part, you have the Sea of Galilee. And if you were to go west of where the Sea of Galilee is at, you'd have the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali. And then he talks about a region that goes round about Gentile, excuse me, the, the Gentile nations, referring to an area north and east of the Sea of Galilee. And the other side of the Sea of Galilee refers to, this is going to be a region that's going to suffer at the hands of uh, the enemies of the nation of Israel, and it's going to be as if there's darkness there of all kinds. And you say, well, why is that passage given to us? Because when you get to verse 2 of chapter 9, you start having messages of a Savior and a Rescuer. He's not just merely God with us. He's a Savior. He's a Rescuer. Because when you get to verse 2, you have God is going to bring light to those that are in abject darkness. People who have no hope at all. Look at verse 2. It says this, the people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined. You go, what does that mean? Well, it's in reference to this region that we just talked about, Naphtali, Zebulun, the area around the Sea of Galilee. And when you get to the Gospels, what you ought to write next to verse number 1 or 2 of chapter 9 is Matthew chapter 4, verses 14 or 15 and 16. You go, why? Because when Jesus starts his ministry uh, and he starts up his ministry as a 30-year-old and he begins to preach the Gospel, this passage is referenced. Because Jesus is going to do most of his ministry in this region. When God with us shows up, he's going to start preaching deliverance to these people. When you read the passage in Matthew chapter 4, 
In verse 12, it says this, And when Jesus had heard that John was cast into prison, John the Baptist, he departed into Galilee and leaving Nazareth, which is in the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. So he grew up there. He came to dwell in Capernaum, which is a city right by the Sea of Galilee, which is upon the seacoast, in the borders of Zebulun and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet. That's Isaiah the prophet saying the land of zebulun and the land of naphtali by the way of the sea beyond jordan galilee of the gentiles the people who which sat in darkness saw great light to them which sat in the region of shadow of death light is sprung up and you say what's the light that's being uh, shared there verse 17 from that time jesus began to preach and to say repent for the kingdom is at hand you know what's the light he's preaching a message of hope but it starts with individuals recognizing their own sinfulness they can't be saved unless they recognize their own sinfulness. But in this region of Galilee, most of the people in Jesus' day thought this was the backwater region. You know, no education for those people. They don't know what's going on. Well, where did Jesus start ministering? In a place of spiritual darkness. And he starts preaching. They start being saved. Uh, in fact, many of the crowds that followed Jesus were from Galilee, not necessarily from Judea. These people were following him and hearing his message and responding to what he had to say. A light shined in a region where there was darkness at one time. And so this passage applies to Jesus. You find also in this passage, starting in verse number four and five you see that this one who is coming that is emmanuel god with us he's going to be a deliverer of the nation look at uh, verse uh, number four it says this for thou hast broken the yoke of his burden the staff of his shoulder the rod of his oppressor as in the day of midian for every battle of the warrior is with confused noise the garments rolled in blood but this shall be with burning and fuel of fire what it's referring to is that there's going to be deliverance and it's going to come in a great battle. Sort of like when Gideon defeated, and that's when it, why it refers to the Midianites. Back in the book of Judges, you had this deliverer by the name of Gideon who rescued the nation of Israel and defeated an army in the northern part of Israel called the Midianites. You know, that trumpet uh, blaring and 300 men yelling uh, and fighting a battle. A great deliverance that was given. And you have just the battle taking place and garments rolled in blood and fuel and fire taking place. There's going to be a deliverance like that someday. You read the, the passage here. You've got a description of what the Lord will do at his second coming. He will fight the nations of the world in this northern region again in the plains of Armageddon. So you read through this, this is going to take place and he's going to do this and deliver the nation of Israel, but he's going to do it not necessarily just by salvation, by faith in him. He's going to deliver them by force. And so this is a prophecy just simply saying that God with us will do that. But ultimately this, when you get to the final conclusion, is that you're going to have a child who will eventually rule all of the nations. And this is why you get to verse number 6, and it says this, For unto us a child is born. What child? You have to go back to verse 14 of chapter 7. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. That's the child that's being talked about here. Behold, a, or for unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Or understand this, these are the groups, you have groups of two words here. He's a wonder of a counselor. There's no one that can give him counsel. He's got more counsel than anybody in this world has because he is the all-wise God. He is also the mighty God. He is the everlasting Father. He's the Father of eternity. And he is the one who ultimately can bring peace. That's why he's called the Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David, upon his kingdom, to order it, to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. This is going to happen. 
you have here that this child who is going to be born who is going to save and bring light to individuals he's going to save the nations is one day going to rule the nations you say where's that at revelation chapter 20 there's a period of a thousand years that the nation of israel looked for where there's peace on earth goodwill to men that the nations have peace that will eventually come that's yet future and you always are amazed as you read through these old testament prophecies that they oftentimes bunch them together so you th- see things in, in in one single sentence that talks about his first coming and then th- things that talk about his second coming but they're mashed together and in this verse you have a son that's born child is given to us uh, and that's the first time jesus comes but then you get to the end and he will one day rule the nations when he comes a second time so what's what's for uh, ahaz here well understand this that god will be with us well who is this god going to be who is this one going to be he's going to be born of a virgin and this is why i want you to turn over to matthew chapter one in your your bible and thus we get to the regular christmas stories but we'll just look at this passage real quick and be done here when you have this story where it starts off with the genealogy of jesus so you know that jesus is in the line of abraham and the line of david he has the right to rule the nation of israel because he's in david's line but it says in verse 18 now the birth of jesus christ was on this wise when his mother was mary was espoused or engaged to joseph before they came together she was found with child of the holy ghost you go what's this this is a virgin okay that's the statement here but verse 19 joseph doesn't understand this joseph her husband being a just man not willing to make her a public example was minded to put her away private privately he's just simply saying we're engaged here and i can put her away in the sense that we'll break off the engagement and it's done because obviously she's with child something happened here that i don't know about but verse 20 while he thought on these things behold the angel of the lord appeared unto him in a dream saying joseph thou son of david fear not to take unto thee mary thy wife for that which is conceived in her is of the holy ghost not do the process or will of men this is something that god has done that idea behold a virgin shall conceive an incredible thing is going to happen something that hasn't happened in human history here it is verse 21 and she shall bring forth a son and thou shalt call his name jesus which is literally the name joshua from the old testament jehovah saves and he call him jesus why because he will save his people from their enemies other nations i mean what's the most important thing that jesus can take care of our sins and verse 23 says this or verse 22 now all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the lord by the prophet saying behold a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son and shall call his name emmanuel which being interpreted is god with us this one born of mary is the emmanuel of the old testament in isaiah chapter 7 that the nation was looking for that god would be with them that god would solve their problems the problem was is when jesus did come they're looking for him to free them from the roman nation that was ruling over them at that time and he's preaching a message of salvation and it wasn't just because jesus showed up the first time that the whole nation was saved no when jesus came the first time he's calling upon people to believe on him to place their faith and trust in him that's the only way that they can be saved that they can have hope that they can have the blessings of god and so for jesus when he comes he's here to save people from their sins and understand as we also look forward to the fact that one day this god with us emmanuel this jesus is going to one day rule over the world you still have to accept him by faith there also to enjoy the blessings of that 
Both occasions, as, as Ahaz back in Isaiah was told, he had to believe in what God said. He rejects it. So it is when Jesus comes the first time, you have to believe on this Jesus, this God with us, and people refuse to do that. So it is when Jesus comes the second time. It's not that he just comes back and everyone's safe, happy. No, those people have to believe on him also. And you go, why? Because he is God who's come to save us from our sins. And you go, why can he save us from our sins? Because A, he's sinless, but B, because he's God, he can infinitely take our punishment, our eternal punishment that we deserve. And when he was on the cross, he bore that because he wasn't just merely a man, he was God. And thus he could save his people from their sins. And so as we sing, and uh, when we close here, we're going to sing uh, the first verse of O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Understand, the nation of Israel is looking for His coming. The first time, they got something they didn't quite expect. They were looking for one to rescue them from the nations, and He came saying, no, you need to be saved from your sins. That's the most important thing. And they were desiring a Savior to come and so it is when we sing this song, O come, O come, Emmanuel, now we're simply saying this, O come, O come, Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus, come back. As you look at the world around us, there's not a whole lot of hope going on. Every time you turn around, something else is going awfully bad. Nations aren't getting along with nations and people are doing things to one another and all sorts of things are crashing down and you're going, there's no hope here. Well, we ought to be able to sing this song just as John said at the end of Revelation, even so come, and he didn't say God with us, but he did say Lord Jesus, God in human flesh. If you would come back, these things would be solved. And we can, we can sing this going, Lord, you can't come back too soon. And you need to save this world from itself. And you need to someday come and rule and reign. And it would be a delight if you would come sooner. And so as you sing, O come and come, Emmanuel, it is a desire of coming, looking forward to the Lord coming a second time that he would truly come. Save people, but also save the nations that are destroying one another, that they would well, understand that God is with them and that he will be with them for a thousand years. God with us. And so even so come, Lord Jesus, we'll sing this in a second here. O come, O come, Emmanuel. Lord, we thank you that Jesus came into this world. He was a message of hope for a hopeless time, a hopeless nation. He was a message for a king who uh, had gone his own way, but yet... They didn't want him. And then you had a nation of people that when Jesus showed up, that rejected him, had him crucified because they didn't want him. But for those that believe, as 1 Peter said, he is precious. He is a delight. He is uh, the one who is everything. Because he's more than just some man that's in human history. He is God who came to die to save people from their sins. Secondarily, to save the nations and, and be able to do that and to rule as he should one day. But he came for the purpose of dying to save people. So Lord, help us as we understand this truth that Jesus was one who was God, human flesh, and that he died, and he died in a way that he could save all of us if we just simply put our faith in him. Lord, there's a lot in this Christmas season that uh, individuals that do not understand the importance of the story, that it's not just merely a story uh, to talk about some things where a person was taken care of that was in a manger and, and these type of things. No, this babe in the manger is God who came to be among us. And so for us, Lord, uh, may we lift up that message that he is the hope he is what the nations desire, the, the desire to have peace. It only comes when a person has peace with God, and that's found through Jesus Christ. So Lord, help us to lift up this one, God with us, Emmanuel.
Lift up Jesus in this season because He is the only answer of hope in a world that is hopeless. May we do this uh, fervently and do this well in this season. In this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.